Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. I am Floodman11, and today we are catching up on the wild weather at Spa-Francorchamps. We're going to look across the pond to the IMSA race at Mid-Ohio, and we're going to preview this weekend's action at Monza for the ELMS. Uh, but before we jump into it uh, as we normally would, uh, we had Trovasaurus uh, go to the track uh, on the six hours of Spa-Francorchamps, and he was going to share his experience with us. Let's have a listen. Hi everyone, Ollie T here with a little roundup of my time at Spa for the six hours. I'd never been to Spa before, other than peering through the gates at La Source maybe 15 years ago while passing through the area on a family trip. We camped out despite the cold, and thanks to Mark Clarkson and DC3 for the tip-off of our campsite. Camping Le Rouge is a fantastic uh, campsite and recommended for anyone making the trip in future. It's not trackside, so pretty nice and quiet. We were right by a little stream, but still within the old circuit layout, so you're really close to where you need to be. The grandstands were thankfully open to the public to offer some cover from the weather, and what amazing weather that was. We were stationed at the start near La Source, where we could see the oncoming weather. That was the direction it was coming from. And we didn't have to wait long for that weather to come in. The TV cameras don't illustrate properly how thick the snow was coming down, or the hail, or the sleet for that matter. Tire temperatures must have been horrible, as ambient temps barely rose above 7 at the start, and by the time we left the circuit it, it was 1 degree Celsius. Then there's the track itself. Up the hill towards the Kemmel Strait is like a ski jump, so steep, in fact, some of the Carrera Cup drivers failed to get up the pit, old pit exit, ending up stuck across the pit lane. I know it's a cliche, but cameras can't show this either. It's a circuit equivalent of a mountain pass, an FIA grade 1 Nordschleifer, if you will. Brussel to Pouon is like a water slide, and the last hairpin is built up underneath like something you'd see in, and out in the Alps. Then there's the size of the circuit itself. From some vantage points, like the grandstand looking over the old pit lane, one could see all the way to Brussels, the other side of the circuit, as the headlights were cutting through the spray. Over the newly named X corner, previously Speaker's Corner, you could see all the way down the valley to Paul Frere and Stavolo, and up the to the hustle and bustle of the paddock. The accessibility of WEC events to the average customer is unrivaled considering the quality of entrance in the paddock, Brushing shoulders with former, current and potentially future F1 drivers is the norm. We got some shelter from one of the later snowstorms by the Chip Ganassi garage, eating chips no less, watching tyre mechanics do their thing preparing for the next strategy gamble. It's completely open, you can look right in the back of the garage at data screens, looking at them prepping old bodywork, new bodywork, scraping tyres, putting them through another heat cycle, etc etc. The last phase of the race was spent above the pit lane watching some stops. An equivalent ticket for this area must be in the thousands for Formula 1. Scrutineering is also out in the open, with cars having body panels removed allowing a look underneath and inside. WEC officials were also asking to make really picky measurements, just in case someone was using illegitimate parts. For example, after the race, various GTs, uh, like the... 77 Porsche and the Pro Ferraris were having their windscreen measured for thickness, which is quite awkward to actually be able to get some vernier calipers around. 
a lot of body panels needed to be removed. Thanks also to Graham Goodwin for spending some of his time post-race with us. It was an interesting discussion chatting about the future of the sport, and as with every WEC event, the value for money is outstanding. If you are fortunate to have one nearby, it is definitely worth the visit. Thank you very much for that Trovosaurus. Yeah, he met up with a bunch of bunch of people at the track, and yeah, great to have his experience shared with us. Um, now pressing on, I've got Cookie Monster FL and Kiwi Chris seventeen oh nine in the booth with me. Good evening slash morning to both of you, gentlemen. That was a lovely audiobook by Trovosaurus. Is that on Amazon Books? I can pick that. He <laughs> <laughs> could have a career as a uh, as an audiobook reader. Although I was, I was, I was waiting for chapter one. That's all. <laughs> Hi. Hello, hello, Kiwi. Just <laughs> um, to get something in there. Yeah, uh, of course, Strovosaurus couldn't be with us recording at the moment because we are recording at about one in the morning his time, so not necessarily the best time for for that. Man, daylight savings just screws everything up. We're pressing on, uh, and we're going to talk about the WC race at Spa. And firstly, guys. What a race. I think of the super season so far, this has to go down as one of the landmark races, not necessarily for how competitive it was at the top, but how interesting and how challenging it was. Not just a super season. I think it's one of the best work races we've actually seen. Wow. Okay. That's pretty high praise. And yeah, I put it close. I mean, there's 2016 Spa that would be up there. There's 2016 Fuji. Actually, the entire 2016 season could be in there. But yeah, no, I think that's a fair shout. Uh, what do you think, Cookie? Uh, no, 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 no. The weather was the weather was like the most unique I've ever seen at a wet race, but that provided challenges galore. Um, I mean, I I wouldn't say it's is the best there's 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 better races out there and yeah. i mean there's lmp1 is not the same so as mm. as much as we've been deprived it's this is a oasis like you know excitement in a desert of a season you know of almost a year of this actually a year um but i wouldn't say it's the best white race but i, I it's it it's extremely interesting <laughs> and it's yeah. something that we finally got after uh, you know, and again, but it's it's not for the right reasons, but it's still reasons nonetheless. It was an extreme, extremely excited race, so well, I won't go that far though. I, you say it was. You, you say that P one wasn't fantastic, but when you look at the other three classes we had, they really made up for the lack of P one battling we saw. GTE was phenomenal. GTE was phenomenal. We'll go through it a right. little later on, but I think the fact that eight cars had the lead of the race at, at during the race at any point with and that was on pace that wasn't on pit cycling or anything that was just on pace i think that says a lot for how competitive the gte class is in the wc at the moment um i do agree with what cookie said though about the unique challenges of the event making it extremely interesting but not necessarily from a outright competitive nature um but it is well that's part and parcel of endurance racing right you have to do the best you can with what you got and what you got was five seasons in one day you we had the start in brilliant sunshine and five minutes later it was hailing and then snowing and then it cleared up and then it happened again and then it cleared up and then it happened again i think paul dalalana said at one point that driving through the snow was like jumping into hyperspace uh, f- from a Star Wars movie or something. That was what I, it will look like. I had the Doctor Who theme playing in my head. Ooh, wow, wow. <laughs> oh, God, I've heard another one. Yep, that's what we do here. 
I think it, it was seriously like that. It was yeah. Just, I think that's the yeah. first time I've ever seen snow at a motor race. Like, there was that one practice session in Silverstone, like, two years ago, where it was snowing in practice, and everyone was like, this is crazy. But to have a race like that, and some of the photos that we got from uh, from the trackside photographers and some of the official photos. The slow-mos, the slow-mos. Oh, my God. Like, that slow-mo at the top of Oru, seeing the ice slide up the Aston Martin's window. Oh. Just Damn. Have you ever seen anything like that before, Cookie? I mean, you've been to a bunch of wet races, but anything like that? Uh, no. I went to a, a couple of historic races at Road America that happened way too early, in, around the same time here in May. Um, <clears throat> and it was terrible. There was flurries, flurries, whatever you want to call them. And yeah, they had sessions red flag, and we were just kind of waiting and all that. So nothing really under those conditions. Obviously, anything above 50 degrees, they keep racing, so... I've probably been to some of the worst <laughs> rainouts in that category, but nothing, nothing this old. Um, only thing that came close in the U.S. side was a NASCAR race. Um, I, I think had a snowfall that was like a couple hours before, and like kind of during, right when the green flag would have fell, so they delayed it by a couple hours, and I think got the race in. But they were doing like snow angels on the banking and stuff. That wow. was a big deal. So. <laughs> But no, this is the first time I think anybody has legitimately raced in snowing conditions where I, how do you remotely classify this? <laughs> is it, do you say monsoon conditions, then you go to like sleet and snow? Like, is that, or is it just raining? It was, I mean, it's frozen rain. But. It was hailing, it was raining, it was everything. And it's good that you mentioned the red flag uh, that you had at your uh, Road America races, because that's something that, we almost got away with. We got through to, uh, I think it was five hours and 49 minutes without a red flag. And that's huge, a huge props to the race organizers, Eduardo Freitas, all the guys in race control, and also everyone on track for managing to get through the race without major incidents. Because honestly, if this had been, say, I don't know, uh, an IMSA race or maybe even a blank pain race or uh, some other series, I would have legitimate fears of someone binning it in a massive way. But somehow, everyone in the field managed to tiptoe their way around and the race was managed extremely well in that regard. And we got almost to the very end without a red flag. And what an achievement. Like, there was zero mm. retirements. Yeah, and the end of the big incidents we had two were caused by p2s uh-huh. and one was caused by being punted off so it's like you know very very few incidents happen because of weather exactly and right you compare, compare it to compare it to say daytona this year where it got a bit wet and everyone started carrying into each other oh it's saying it got a bit okay, wet yeah, I know. <laughs> okay i've still, I've still got the stuck the ruined jacket somewhere to present but <laughs> Yeah, for me, it, it it comes down to two things. So I mentioned this at Sebring and where some of the uh, the marshals, track marshals had noted the kind of caliber drivers that were in WC versus IMSA and how much more tidy and almost quote-unquote professional a lot of the more WC sessions were. And not to use that specific thing, but what they said was that you could tell what was a WC session and what was an IMSA session. So okay. I think that, that played into it a bit for me and just understanding like, these are world-class drivers. So I feel like if anybody's going to be able to handle this, it would be those guys. But not only that, I think this was an extraordinary race just from how unique the track conditions were. 
Um, yes, snow is interesting. What I think made this race interesting dealing with the snow is the intermittent conditions that came 15 minutes after it started snowing. It would just stop and we would have sun conditions, sunny conditions mm. melt, you know, essentially completely different seasons like Flood had mentioned. So you didn't have this opportunity to red flag it because there's three inches of snow on the ground because you would never get to that point. You get enough of dusting and then it would just turn to a beautiful spring morning in you know in Belgium. Ends, and I'd like, argue that racing in snow, that sort of snow is probably safer than racing in heavy rain like you saw at Daytona. Well, Kiwi, how many times have you interacted with snow in your life? I lived in New Zealand for 12 years. Oh, actually, yeah, that's a good point. Okay. I will <laughs> happily concede that you probably know more about yeah. snowy conditions yeah. when than, you, than I when do. You have, when you have snow that's not sitting on the ground like that, and let's not forget the racetracks, okay, it was not warm, but it wasn't freezing at that point, so it wasn't sitting on the ground. Yeah, that's a good so point. It's, so it's sort of just melting away into water, so it wasn't... Why did I sort of melt away to? But you get my point. It was sort of, it was sort of just melting away. It wasn't building up to three, four inches, at which point you just go, no, we can't race. Yeah, good call. Um, yeah, see, I haven't ever seen snow, so I wouldn't have any idea with how it works mechanically or physically. So, yeah, I guess that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. But no, that, there's still major props to everyone involved for keeping it going and most series would have absolutely pulled the pin on that. Yeah, most series would have pulled the pin way, way, way early. And they pulled the pin at the right time because that last flurry, there was no... If the, Okay, yes, it was 10 minutes to go, but if there was longer, they still would have pulled the pin. There was no way you could race from that. Yeah, that, that last dump was like the final FU to everyone trying to compete at that point in time. We'd gotten yeah. close, we'd gotten close, but I think that was it. I just want to say one more thing before we actually move into the results. Uh, the images of the cars coming down the Camel Strait with the spray and being able to see nothing but the headlights, it was phenomenal. Some of the some of the camera work, some of the shots, some of the the vision that we got to see from that race, and that's one of the most unique things I've ever seen in racing. Uh, and yeah, props to again, props to all the drivers, props to all the teams, props to all the organisers for able for getting through that sort of weather and that's those sort of conditions and making it a proper motor race. And again, uh, finally, uh, props to all the marshals as well because they would have been in a world of pain. Like, if if that was me, I would have been like cuddled up in the corner, clutching a cup of tea, watching it freeze in front of me while trying to stay warm and shivering my butt off right i mean like you're you're talking there's the the way that we go about dealing with snow and ice in in road conditions is completely ineffective in a on a, in a racetrack because you're essentially just going let's just throw tiny little shards of rock down mm. you know where it'll soak up all the water and then you just have no grip attraction, but at least there's water on the ground instead of ice. Yep. I mean, like you get enough of it on the ground, you're you're basically just trying to drive through slush and or ice. So, yeah, that's not good at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's insane that we we had the opportunity to see something like this, and I this is the first time that I I know of that this has ever happened. I know Nurburgring twenty what was it seventeen had sixteen had hail, which technically is sort of similar but it's a hailstorm and a, and a severe thunderstorm that happened so i would call this 
essentially more or less snowing. Although I think there yeah. was hail too, right? There Somebody was, hail was saying too, that there yeah. was ah, that's just insane. It that was pretty insane. Crazy yeah. condition. Just to close off, understatement. Just to close off that 2016 loop. Uh, that day there was it basically was a flash hailstorm at one part of the circuit after the rest of the track was dry, and so cars actually couldn't get up the hill on their slick tires because they just kept slipping down the hill, and it was a little bit hilarious. I'm not going to lie, but also pretty dangerous. <laughs> so they red flagged it for quite a long time. Uh, let's let's talk some results now. So we'll go through uh, class by class and touch on the discussion points. First off, in P1, there were quite a few problems and not just because of the weather. Firstly, bike collars got LMP2'd and there's always something with bike collars. Um, they were one of the teams that were involved in a first lap, uh, sorry, first corner incident um, where I think it was the 37 Jackie Chan DC car moved across in the braking zone, didn't realize that the Bicolas car were then and ba- basically nerfed them into the outside of La Source. So that wasn't ideal. Remember, they were running a kind of Frankenstein chassis of their old chassis grafted to fit the Gibson engine. Um, so they weren't necessarily on the pace. They were kind of using it as an ex- uh, extended test session. Uh, and then they also got a three-minute stop and go for using an unregistered tire. So That's the bike collars we know. That is the bike collars. At <laughs> least it didn't set on fire. Although if it had set on fire in those conditions, I would have been very impressed. Oh, If it set on fire in those conditions, the marshals wouldn't have put it out. It would have been like, oh, the snow will get it at some point. Um, Bob, bring the marshmallows! <laughs> Fantastic. I'm going to bring a pack of marshmallows if I ever marshal a race for the bike collars. Is that just in case? No, um, I see what you do is on the grid walk, you have a like just a bag of them and then you just toss them quick in into the uh, into the cockpit when nobody's looking. So that way, when it eventually sets on fire, the driver needn't get out. He just pulls a marshmallow. And yeah, and just, just has, has a marshmallow. Toast. Or pass right. them on to Team Yost as well. <laughs> brutal uh, and JD Amore sends his regards oh yes of course uh, they will never the win fantasy... a race I swear to god what was that sorry <laughs> they will never win a race yeah, it's brilliant. To god. we'll touch on that a little later on uh, he won the fantasy WEC round for Spa which annoys me as well but we'll press on uh, <laughs> the number 7 Toyota didn't finish in the top two. They had a hybrid issue, which turned out to be an electric braking hybrid sensor, uh, which cost them about 10 minutes in the pits. Uh, and that actually sent them down below the LMP2 field at that point in time. They did manage to recover to the head of the LMP2 field, so ahead of all the LMP2s, but they didn't press further on, and part of that was due to the intermittent weather conditions. They couldn't get back up to the likes of the SMPs and the Rebellions, uh, who didn't have a trouble-free run in themselves. I think the number 11 SMP got to the finish in fifth, fourth position, uh, unable to shift above fourth gear and the number one rebellion i think there's a quote on the sub at the moment where andre lotterer said that they had or neil Jani said they had just the worst race anyone could ever had so not not an easy day out in lmp1 at all guys mm. i'm surprised the smp actually finished as well as they did because thinking about it four gears when you're six gear car you're going to be losing what 40 40k I think it would be more than Top that. Inch? If you think yeah, if you think about Vmax at the end of the Kemmel Straight, even yeah. in those conditions, it's gonna it would be a significant amount. Although 
I don't think it would be that bad from Lacombe to Stavolo. I think you'd be losing the most heading into the bus stop and heading up Camel. Mm, but that's still 30 seconds of not quite being at top speed. This is true. This is true. So I'm surprised they finished as well as they did. I thought they finished third in the end. Uh, that was the 17 car, I think. Let me just double check the results. Oh, actually, no, you're right. The number 11 car did finish in third. I was uh, going to say, there's a re- yeah, because it was in my fantasy pick, so I was keeping an eye on I'm pretty sure it was third. Yep, and then the 17 finished in fourth. Uh, yeah, the, the number one Rebellion racing car actually finished uh, three laps down on the winner and a further lap behind the other S&P car. So it wasn't necessarily the cleanest race for for the LMP1 guys, um, except for the Toyota, who had like one half spin, and then the Toyota number eight, this is, had one half spin and then just one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, spinning into Pukon, who hasn't done that in their life? I mean, all three of us who've never raced at Spa-Francorchamps. But if someone like Fernando Al- Alonso, Alonso can do it. Forlando Alonso. <laughs> it's early in the morning, all right? Yeah, this is a good point. Um, Cookie, what was your read in LMP1? Uh, what do you reckon happens from here towards Le Mans? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> Move along. <laughs> uh, no, I, there's not a whole lot to take away, I think, from this outside of that privateers didn't break when they had every ample opportunity to do so. Uh, the racing at when they were near them uh each other was great uh but there's still uh still another zip code um as we like to say over here uh away from toyota and um i don't see that changing i i there's just a part of me that holds out sliver hope that we can get them faster than the toyotas on a on a genuine qualifying pace but i just don't see it i think this is there might be some fuel flow allocations helping privateers for Le Mans, but I don't, I, I think this is what we're going to see at Le Mans, um, to, you know, depending on weather conditions and how the Toyotas handle, because we did see a Toyota uh, get affected by um, some actual mechanical issues. So, that, And that actually did year. drop them further down the field than just towards, like, just to second in class. Because remember, the first race of the, the Super Season, that that Toyota started from effectively two laps down and st- still beat the rest of the field by two laps. So the fact that they're closer, even in these, in these tough conditions, the fact that they were closer makes it a little better. That, that's kind of the whole point of the EOT, right? It was to be that if Toyota ever made this tiniest slip-up, the privateers would be there. And so even when the privateers were struggling, yes, it was a unique race in the, the weather conditions, uh, but even in those conditions, the privateers filled the gap. And yeah, the Toyota, the number seven Toyota finished sixth, which actually loses them the championship. So the championship uh, is in the Toyota number eight, number eight's hands. And I think that's that's it. Congratulations, guys. Well deserved. It was a long, hard fought championship. Well done. Secured it the last race. Well done. <laughs> Um, I mean, <laughs> I I echo Chris's sentiment. Uh, very genuine. Sorry, 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 sorry. Sure. It can it confirms them the LMP1 championship, but there is a slim Driver. non-zero chance that should the number eight fail to finish Le Mans and the number seven wins, that the number seven could take the championship. And we know that Toyota's not 
it's showing a little chink in their armor, just a small one, but it is there. This is... I, it's six hours, and yeah. and they almost and they almost made it back up too. So here's the here's my final stuff. And again, I you know me negative stance, whatever, blah blah. blah. So here's where I'm looking at when you go, all right, Cookie, what are you what are you looking at here? So for me, doesn't really matter because it's still a second gap between their their fastest lap times. And then if you also look at the speed trap times, there's the Toyotas are basically faster than the privateers are anyway. So privateers, I'm assuming, are setting up for a wet setup so fine they're not going to get the higher top end speed but now you're basically showing me an interim conditions uh or intermediate conditions that interim but that toyota essentially is the faster car in those anyway it, it you know it's faster on top speed obviously downforce and acceleration plus the four-wheel drive so uh, yeah let's all hope that it if we do get rain it's a lot of it and we see safety cars because i i just feel like it would be even more of a walkover if it's a wet Le Mans. And, um, but the thing that I take away from this is that we'll see an additional uh, SMP or not SMP. We'll see an additional BR one that the pace between the rebellion and the BR one, is really good. It's really close. Mm. And that I think if we can just almost remove Toyota from discussion in LMP one right now, because we, we, we just can, that can be a pretty good race and pretty good focus. And that, like I said, I, I LMP one wasn't my favorite, but it had some good moments during the race. But it wasn't the Toyotas; yeah. it was the private. I'll just comment on one thing before we move on to LMP two. The looking at the speed traps, uh, you mentioned um, the the speed traps favoring the Toyotas. Actually, it was the Rebellion that was the fastest car in the speed trap, but that was also in free practice one when it was dry. So, and also that speed trap's right down the end of Camel, isn't it? Exactly right. So that's after the lift and po- uh, so I think it's right about the lift and coast point. Um, but they were yeah, about three kilometers not faster. To do that though, huh? aren't they? No, the, the Toyotas still are. The Toyotas still is, but the Rebellions and the SMPs shouldn't be. So, oh, because gotcha. Rebellion were using their low downforce kit as well they were trialing it so there is pace in those cars it's a matter of yeah getting the traction out of the corners and passing the traffic which we've already discussed plenty of times the toyotas are just much better at so moving on now to lmp2 uh i was most surprised that the michelin tires weren't all dominant generally we see the michelin clad cars do fantastically well on the wet because michelin just makes an amazing wet tire but it wasn't all that it was actually a pretty solid mix of Michelin and Dunlop at the top of the field, um, but that red flag at the end of the race changed everything. Basically, we were <laughs> we we were a little confused as to what was going on, but that that final red flag just threw everything out the window. Yeah, the strategy game was who was going to win out of that would have been Alpine, wouldn't it? Uh, it actually would have been so. So, okay, let's let's paint the picture here. So, we're coming up to the last end of the race. It gets told that Dragon Speed are one minute short on their drive time for their amateur, for Gonzalez. One minute. So, they have to make another stop to put uh, Gonzalez in for a, basically a single lap. Second position is G-Drive Racing in the Aorus, in their uh, guest entry. Third position is Alpine. Apparently, according to post-race uh, scrutineering and paddock notes, etc., they were running on quote-unquote fumes. So Ooh. they would have had to come in for emergency service. So that actually would have put the win in the number 38 Jackie Chan DC Racing's lap. Huh. And they didn't have the greatest of races. 
No, no, they didn't. They weren't necessarily uh, troubled, but they weren't necessarily, uh, like, pacey either. So, yeah, a little a little bit nutty that the red flag not only saved Dragon Speed and got them a win, but uh, also saved G-Drive and Alpine uh, for their podium positions. And remember as well, that G-Drive car isn't a full season entry, so it's basically invisible for points. So the the third place Alpine actually gets second place points. Massive for for them in the championship. Yes. Um, that Dragon Speed not putting their driver in. Where do you guys stand on that? I'll let of- Cookie take this one first. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I don't. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> what what don't I like? Um, tough. No, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really have a huge. I don't have a massive opinion. It's just I got to do what you got to do to win, I guess. But oh, see, I did, I did a little bit of math. So that's the, scary. The dry, I know. See, what's the, what was the am time? A hundred minutes? Uh, I think it's a hundred and five minutes from recollection. I think it's one hour forty five. Okay, it went out 45. So, based on the fact we lost 10% of oh, 10 minutes of the race, that was a deduction of his time of 2 minutes 46 seconds. That works, then, I guess. Because they, yeah, were, they remember, were. Remember after the issues we've had in the past, we've had to pro right or everything? Yep. So, yeah, so essentially, they had, what, another minute buffer. Okay. So, if the race was going on for five more minutes, they would have been screwed. Hmm. I yeah, do I'm not, still I... think though there should have been some sort of penalty applied because they have because they were never going to meet those rules without this bit of luck. Well, I guess you have to you have to officiate by the rules as written. This is a very unique sort of event um, in terms of how it all panned out, and I don't think you can say, oh, you're a minute short of your drive time, you're going to get penalized a minute, which would drop you down into fourth place because of the safety car, right? Um, they, and it's, and it's not like, on the other hand, they had like a full stint to go and did it that way. It's, it's just, they were very close and the red flag came out at the right time for them and they were lucky. And I don't think you can be that mad. I mean, I'm not, happy with it but i'm also not necessarily against it it's just a thing right yeah no i'm the same way i'd like that i'm the same person that wants to see penalties doled out for like corner cuts at turn one and formula one starts man like i but like i know that that's unrealistic and it's basically harsh so i accept the fact that like what i'm wanting is probably be technically correct but it won't you know, it's it's there's not a good result to that. So mm. I feel like this is along the same lines here is that if we hand out a penalty, yes, it would make sense based upon what we're doing. However, I think to more or less their situation, technically the way that it ended, if you add everything up, you could, you know, you could uh, debate your way out of that penalty in general. So it's yeah. not even like they've been triggered in a penalty triggering scenario. This is the prospect of had they continued for the additional time that they then they would have. So I don't know that, that that's I think that's so too much gray area that the FI were just hands off. Let's just leave it. I don't. We're not going to deal with anything. Yeah, so, I, I think it's I'm fine with that. officiating by the spirit of the law instead of the letter of the law, and they were close enough to that mark to 
make it okay, in my opinion. Um, and, of course, by the letter of the law, well, I think by the letter of the law, they're fine as well, um, with the red flag. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's one of those things that you never really think about until it happens, and afterwards you go, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it's, and I suppose this is such an edge case. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 I mean, I suppose it was la- la- like last night in the footy, game-winning shot at goal, and the opposition player dumped on the goalpost. Um, to the letter of the law, that was that should have been a penalty, but his kicking from 78 was never going to make it. That's weird. I did not see that. So, well, there you go. We're pulling everything from all sports here. Uh, mm. We'll just uh, touch on the championship before we move on to what I really wanted to talk about. Uh, the LMP2 championship is actually quite tight at the front at the moment. So with Alpine taking second place, remember the G-Drive car is invisible, um, the Alpine now leads the championship on 143 points, followed by the number 38 Jackie Chan DC car on 139, so it's a four-point gap. The number 37 Jackie Chan DC car is on 138 after they had a little bit of a struggle at Spa-Francorchamps. And then the Dragon Speed car is still mathematically able to win the championship on 117. Uh, it's it's real tasty up at the front there. Uh, the flip side of this, of course, is that the number 37 car can't win the driver's championship because they changed drivers halfway through. But still, that's only a four-point gap, and that is less than the difference between first and second uh, for Le Mans. In fact, four points is the difference between second and third for Le Mans. So remember, the ELMS and the Invitational cars are invisible in the championship. So we could see Alpine finishing like fifth behind all the ELMS cars and then still win the championship based on where the Jackie Chan DC car finishes. So it's it's going to be tasty at Le Mans for the LMP2 championship. It's going to be going to be quite tasty. Uh, is that the is that the only championships that in play? Uh, no, uh, okay. in fact, all the championships besides the Manufacturers' Championships are in play, and we'll talk about that. Uh, let's go right now um, with GTE Pro. So, first thing I want to say about GTE Pro is, what? No, no, no. Ser- seriously, what? Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> all praise Aston Martin. Good. Uh, actually, no, that is quite well. superior guesses throughout the race <laughs> yeah because that's what it was that's what it was right? <laughs> their first win that this is i honestly though w- w- this is the perfect way for that new car to win like it doesn't win on out now, i wouldn't say outright pace but like i'm pure like every other aspect of the race you know just just pure chaos theory right exactly <laughs> yeah that i feel like that car is a little bit chaos theory in its own thing so it's because they yeah, changed from british racing green to whatever that color is now uh, baby poo lime, green lime 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 green um yeah fantastic race in gte pro it was every single car i think had pace at different parts of the race there was eight out of the 10 cars led the race at one point i mentioned that was on pace not on strategy that was actually on pace uh the aston and, and the porsche seemed to be much quicker in the wet whereas the bmw and the ferrari seemed to take the ascendancy in the drying conditions and then when the track was completely dry the fords were the class of the field uh they were easily the fastest car in qualifying and took that pole position point but as soon as the rain came down they fell off the pace and so you had this very interesting ebb and flow of the 
the car as the rain came down the astons and the porsches came to the front of the field and then it started to dry out and the bmw started to push further in and it was this fantastic dynamic of what's going to happen next and then yeah the the guesses and the pit stops were what uh what gave aston that control and they yeah controlled the latter half of the race but man some of the battling through through the sleet and then through the dry like going side by side up O'Rouge, side by side through Blanchemont, side by side through the campus. It was phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. I think Mahavens called it just like touring cars at one point. It basically was. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> touring cars with cooler bodies. Yeah. The the pace of, uh, what was it? It was notable, I think, about halfway through um, when the Ford's pace would just fall off in what it would appear the transition between conditions. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember what hour it was, but the BMW is both are pretty much in tandem and just absolutely blew by the Fords. Like worth two to three seconds a lap faster than them. And I pretty much gapped them. It looked like they were in a different class. Mm. And like, and then 20 minutes later, the Fords were just catching right back up. And, you know, so it was, it was it was um, so refreshing to see the GT field be this close on pace, but then also be dominant in so different, you know, varying conditions, I yeah. guess. I think a lot of that um, was due to tires as well. There was a stretch, I think it was about two and a half hours left in the race where we had a rain shower. It's It started to clear up and there was a dry line for me. And then we had another rain shower. And I think the Fords especially got caught with their wet tires being too old to manage that little dry period in the middle, so they got into they got into a bit of no man's land where they couldn't really come in to change the tires, but they couldn't stay out on those older tires, and they had to change. They came in and changed the tires, and then blew the blocks off them in the dry. And then when the rain came down, they just couldn't get that uh, clearance uh, from the wheels again. Um, and so yeah, it was it was a little bit of luck, a little bit of strategy, and a little bit of just cojones in, in that race <laughs> a lot of cojones yeah exactly um i want to point out that it the the later part of the race even though it was controlled by aston martin i'd still say it's a missed opportunity for bmw they were looking very very strong towards the end of the race and the fact that they didn't claim a podium is shocking yeah, but, yeah. um well the 81 came home ninth what they had to make an extra pit stop didn't they Yes, they did, but at one stage, it was looking like the two BMWs were going to be the two minor placings on the podium behind that lead Aston Martin, and the fact that uh, the 81 had to take that extra pit stop, which dropped them uh, down to, yeah, as we said, ninth in class, so right at the tail of the field, and the other BMW, which was looking very strong as well, actually dropped out of the top three. It just it strikes me as a missed opportunity. Uh, they seem to have made the wrong strategy call at the wrong time, and that's what kind of threw them under the bus. Uh, on the other hand, the guys in the AF Corsa garage and the Porsche garage got the call right when they pitted early in that safety car sequence, and that actually brought them to the top of the field, uh, even though... Uh, yeah, even though the conditions were changing. So you know, there was a little bit of luck involved, but in the end, the 97 Aston Martin was a deserving winner, I feel, uh, and then the 51 AF Corsa and the 92 Porsche 
were the next best contenders. Uh, the BMWs came home fourth and ninth, and then the Fords were kind of anonymous at the end, coming home fifth and tenth. Uh, the, that second one a lap down. So that wraps up the GTE Pro as much as we can sort of get to at the moment. Uh, we'll move on very quickly to just touch on GTE Am. Uh, we had a cracking race between the Porsches and the Ferraris for the most part, and also the TF Sport Aston Martin. But really, at the end of the day, the number 77 car has taken another win this season in a season which has been marred by a little bit of controversy for them. But still, they've taken now four wins plus a sort of cheated win at uh, Fuji. So... Had they not lost all their points for the races that they did uh, legitimately win early in the season, they would be right up there in the championship fight. Uh, but the, the, the TF Sport guys really deserve a big old hand here for having a real good shot at it and getting so close again, uh, their second, second place at Spa this season. Uh, on the other hand, though, I want to talk a little bit about the Project One and Spirit of Race cars. Now, both of them were strong at different points of the race. I think when Fisher Keller was in the Spirit of Race car, especially, it was motoring through the field. But because that's the championship battle at the moment, and neither of them really got the ascendancy on the other, I think both of them missed a chance to really consolidate their position. Uh, I mean, Fisher Keller and the Spirit of Race guys get a little bit of a pass for, you know, getting nerfed at one of the safety car restarts and, uh, getting spun out by the 91 who took a penalty. Um, and then the Project One car, who was in the box seat at that point, ended up spinning and making contact with the wall uh, in one of the rain showers. So both of them were involved in things they probably shouldn't have in the end and lost a significant amount of potential championship quality, if that makes sense. So, it yeah, it was a little bit of a weird one. And uh, yeah, in the end, the... The guys at the back of the field, the Dempsey Proton Racing, the Golf Racing, the MR Racing guys, and even the Aston Martin, the Paul Delalana 98 Aston Martin car, they'd be feeling pretty hard done by getting sort of lost in those conditions. The championship picture is very interesting, though, at the moment. Uh, there's about, I think there's five cars with a mathematical chance to win the championship at Le Mans, which is, I think, the closest, uh, or sorry, the largest group of cars that have a chance at a championship uh, i think the the project uh, team project one team is in the box seat with a 23 point lead so remember for Le Mans, it's uh 1.5 times points so a 23 point lead uh is not all i think that's the difference between first and third for Le Mans. remember it's 38 points for the win and then the spirit of race and tf sports cars and the 77 Dempsey Proton racing cars are all within uh, a further seven points back. So there's uh, only 30 points but separating those top three. And then even the Aston Martin uh, 98 team is only a further six points back. So 36 points between the top five. And you get 38 points for a win. And I think it's 27 uh, for second place. And then 23 for third. So... Still, even at this late stage, it is all to play for in the GTM Championship. We're going to take a little break to sort of fix everything up, and we'll be back shortly with IMSA discussions. 
So welcome back uh, after that brief little technical interruption. Uh, we're here to talk IMSA now, IMSA at Mid-Ohio, and I've been joined by Alex9001. Good afternoon or evening or wherever you are, Alex. Yes, good morning, right? Yes, very good. Good morning to you. Yes, it's good evening to me. far too early this morning to deal with technical stuff. Um, so Cookie and Kiwi have had to make their ways out into the wild world of yonder. So Alex is joining me for a chat on the IMSA race at Mid-Ohio, and we saw, I'll start off by saying we saw similar conditions for the entire weekend uh, from Spa at Mid-Ohio, except for the race. It was a beautiful, sh- a shiny, sunny day for the race, um, but you wouldn't have known it had you been there on the Saturday or Sunday morning. Yeah, the areas right outside the track were basically mud pits um, throughout practice, and I think qualifying too, right? Yeah, uh, it was quite moist. Race day was like, it was like, there was, it was like none of that had ever happened. Mm, It was, it was very weird. But of course, if you went one or two wheels off, you drag on a ton of mud. And we saw that on the first lap, actually, I think it was the number five car dragged a massive amount of mud directly onto the circuit after a little bit of contact in the first corner. Uh, What are your thoughts on Mid-Ohio as a track, first of all? Because it's, it's... It's something else, I think. It's just a fun little bullring. Yeah, it's definitely a really uh, flowy track. Um, <clears throat> a lot of good opportunities for overtakes, as we will get into later, um, talking about a couple final laps. Um, lots of elevation change. A surprising amount of elevation change for if you're like familiar with US geography at all, you wouldn't think that something like that would be in mid-Ohio, yet it is, and it's great. Mm. I, I really like that section from turn four <laughs> up the hill to five, and then you plunge down the hill into six, and it's it's just a really, really cool part of the track. Uh, and also, because it's so tight and so short, uh, it's it was very busy. There was a lot of ebbs and flows in traffic, especially the prototype gap at the head of the field. Right, it's definitely not like a like modern type of track where you have like, five car widths of track to play with so you really have to be smart about who's around you and uh, kind of where you're placing yourself in traffic yeah exactly right i think we saw the battle for the lead which was between the 77 mazda and the number six acura uh stretch out to five seconds at one point and then the next lap it would be less than a second it was very much a, a an accordion through the the massive amount of traffic because of course we had gtd uh, feature and GTL. We actually had all four classes, which meant that we had something like 36 cars on track and 36 cars around a, what, a one minute 12 lap time for the prototypes. Yeah, not even that big of a track. Yeah. So what that meant was that we had this really frantic first section of the race because not only did we have the prototype battles, but they were fighting their way through the GTLM battles, of course, eight cars there, and a further 17 or something cars in GTD, which were all doing their own thing. They were all battling and doing all that crazy stuff themselves. And it meant, yeah, that first section of the race where the prototype cars were trying to funnel through that traffic, it created some great ebb and flows, but it was very frantic for that first 20 minutes or that first stint and it started straight off the start line we saw at the start there was this huge save by the number 55 Mazos being driven by ryan hunter ray at the time where he got tapped by the accurate number seven just entering the first corner and he was almost facing like perfectly like perpendicular sideways on the track like looking at the curb 
and somehow he brought it back up. He, he's like somehow brought it back to straight, and they just kept driving. Yeah, and this is like one of those things that could have been like a huge like big like lap one pileup. Yeah, it then... could have been catastrophic because behind that as well, the Wayne Taylor car had been given the same sort of serve, and then even further back, I think one of the I think the BMW uh, Truman car had gone into the back of one of the LMP2s. So there was three separate mini incidents that all could have turned into a major one, but everyone, well, besides the 38 and the 96, kind of escaped unscathed, uh, which was uh, a, a good good way to start the race. You generally want unscathed cars. Um, but that first stint, that first time they came through traffic, was an absolute madhouse. There were passes being made in GTD while the leaders are coming around. At one stage, I think there was a slow prototype on the track and the leaders just went straight past it right as they were passing some GTD traffic and like they missed it by that much. It was nutty for the first 25 minutes and then it just began to settle down a bit. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. And that was the... the the number six Acura passed the Mazda for the first time um, in that traffic. And then later in the race, the opposite thing happened. Yeah. And yeah, that was all a part of the accordion effect of as you're going through these, this battle, uh, they, the gaps would stretch and close and all that sort of stuff. So it was Acura and Mazda at the top of the field. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but my first impression from Montoya's stint, because um, he got put in the car at the first pit stop, my, my impression from his stint was that he seemed to struggle in the early part. He didn't really get a handle on the car or the traffic or anything, and that enabled, uh, I think it was, was it Nunez? Or was it, uh, who was the other driver in that car? Um, in the number six uh not the number six uh oliver java 77 right yeah the 77 uh yeah i think it was nunez that enabled nunez to really make a a battle of it in the first stint uh after that pit stop but as the race went on it seemed that montoya grew into the car and grew into the rhythm and managed to settle himself down and settle the race down yeah i i've noticed at one point montoya was up to three seconds behind the Mazda. Mm. But uh, later on, yeah, he just started, he just started like laying down fast, consistent laps and got closed the gap up a little. Um, and then it was some pit stop trickery that eventually was in the pit stop. Yeah, it was in the pit stop um, about halfway through the race was when the pass ultimately happened. Mm, and I think it was a very weird one because at that point, uh, the Mazda was at, uh, about two seconds ahead of the Acura, but after that, they were like three or four seconds behind. So I wonder if they went too far on fuel or made the wrong decision in like when to take the pit stop, but it seemed that it seemed that the, the Mazda lost about five seconds out of nowhere almost. Right. I think... They pitted at the same. They pitted at the same exact time. Oh, okay. Correctly. I thought they were um, a lap apart. It might have been a lap apart, mm. whereas like to the point where like one was like pulling in as one was pulling out. Yeah, something. Um, but it was like pretty close to each other. Um, but yeah, I think it was just under the feeling. I think they did the same thing on the tires and everything. Yeah. Yeah. 
because they because they were talking about the track being so cold that they wanted to put on scrub tires to get them up to temperature as opposed to new ones but as they went through the race the track temp came up quite a fair bit because of the the sunlight on the track and so i think in the last in everyone took new tires which was pretty cool you always want to see a battle on new tires at the end of the race right right yeah for sure I want to leave prototype just there for a second and we'll move down to GTLM and we'll we'll talk about it we'll talk about all this in order and then we'll talk about the the last stands of the race. So GTLM uh I I I think it's not uh not wrong to say that Porsche were the class of the field in GTLM. Yeah, for sure. The one thing about GTLM that's kind of confusing me this whole race and maybe I just wasn't paying attention but why was a Ford missing the tail light? It was both of them as well. The The other one lost the taillight uh, further into the race as well. Uh, I think those little pods over the rear wheels, I think they're pretty flimsy. If you look at how they're connected to the, the chassis of the car, there isn't really a lot of anchoring points and it looks like they can uh, just sort of clip off. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's just got a little bit of contact in the rear and it's just kind of gone, well, goodbye. Yeah, well, that's what they get for making a prototype. Yeah, it's just... This is true. Um, <laughs> damn, it completely ruined my train of thought. Uh, so the the GT, um, so- GTLM race it was an easy two stop race, so no concerns with fuel saving or that sort of stuff. Um, but it seemed that the cars, the, the Porsche especially, who were able to make that last pit stop shorter, had a massive ascendancy in the strategy of the race. Um, and even like the, the nine, nine twelve took the lead in that last pit stop, but even the nine eleven who right. had a jump start penalty, a drive through penalty came back to, to be in contention for the last stint. Yeah. still managed to be on the podium track passing the BMW for third place. Yeah. Even in nine eleven, who did like, honestly, like a really blatant and kind of confounding jump start at the beginning of the race. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Managed, managed to get all the way back up to third place in like not even that long of a race, and um, yeah, passed the BMW, passed the BMW on track to get that third with like not maybe in like the last twenty minutes of the race or so. Yeah, well, they had third position before the last little stretch of the race, which uh, kind of separated the before and after because there was a full course yellow. Uh, I think it was about 20, uh, 35 minutes from the end it started. And that kind of, yeah, reset the race. And we'll talk about what that meant for each of the classes a little later on. But I I was impressed by the Porsches, not so impressed by the Fords, who looked like they struggled throughout the entire race. Yeah. Um, and their, their strategy was kind of atypical of um, what I expected from them. I think they were the last, yeah, they were the last GTLMs to pit in the race. Yeah, because normally the Ford, like, they they want to push that fuel advantage that they seem to get. Uh, they talk about, oh, what's his face, uh, Richard Westbrook being the featherfoot, like, just having that innate ability to save fuel. So normally they yeah. like to come in at the earliest possible time and really try and push that uh, fuel advantage to the end. But yeah, they they kind of just were nowhere, which is not the way you want to finish up your program in the last year. Yeah, it was. I was surprised at how nostalgic I felt about the that they had their like quote unquote heritage livery 
just like their normal livery of this year, except a little bit brighter. But like, it was just a nice. I don't match. know. It it just made me like feel it. I guess I was at Daytona 2015, which was their first like ever race with a Ford GT. So maybe so that's probably one. Yeah. But like, yeah, I was I was like surprised at the I, I was surprised at the impact that them doing that livery had on me, even if it's only like four years old and like it's kind of a joke to call it livery. Yeah, livery. It, it did look a little special compared to the the newer glossier deeper sort of one um i'm very interested to see what they do for le mans because they're planning apparently four different heritage liveries for le mans pardon me so yeah. that that that's a little exciting um yeah i think it's gotta be like a gt40 yeah livery yeah at the, least one or even two of them the the black blue with the white stripes or the golf or something right. like that i would go absolutely nutty for a golf Ford gt i'm not even kidding for sure. Uh, we'll just touch on GTD very quickly. And I just want to say it was a bloody madhouse. Absolute madhouse. Who, it was Voltwood. Who decided that they should have that many cars and that they should be that close on pace and that they should be that good? Yeah, I just say when you have so many cars, that's just what's going to happen when, like, so, like, not even, not just like so many cars, but it's like so many, like, good cars. Mm. And, yeah, like, Bath, who wasn't around last year, the new Lexus team. Yep, uh, Aim Vassar Sullivan. Uh, there was yeah. the the Meyer Shank team were very very fast on pace. You had the more speed Audi doing very well, uh, and yeah. then yeah, even even the uh, even the what's it called the the Riley Motorsports team until yeah. they uh, unceremoniously ran into the back of one of the uh, banana boats uh, and broke their face. Basically, <laughs> they were doing <laughs> yeah, it's very a good way very to well. Put it. Yeah. So take us... Did you see that incident? Yeah, I did. It yeah. was... Um, take us through what happened. Yeah, so the... 80... Who, someone prototype. Don't remember numbers. But someone was um, going around the outside of another prototype. And... Was it turn one, I think? Uh, turn two, into the keyhole. Turn two, right. So the prototype seemed to break... Either the prototype braked extra early, which is likely what happened, or the Riley Mercedes just like literally, which is like pretty improbable. So yeah, GTD card pretty much just smacked into the back of the prototype. Kind of reminds me of we saw the same type of behavior at um, it was a number eighty five Cadillac, so it was yep. JDC Miller. JDC Miller, yeah. um, not uh, PL one, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, the number eighty five was probably. Um, like taking alternate line, like the outside line to the had to break early to make it. But it kind of reminds me of we we kind of saw the same stuff at uh, Long Beach, just because it was like a street circuit yep. and so the corners are so narrow that the GT car's mechanical grip kind of lets them like intrude, I guess, on the prototypes a little bit. At entry. Yeah, run a little deeper, run a little longer, and break a little lighter. Right, but here I guess we shouldn't have seen that. Yeah, it was, um, it was a bit of a weird one. I think that was Jerome Blackamolan's first lap on the new tires. So he'd just gotten in the oh, car. Was. And yeah, he was on new tires, which were still very, very cold. So I think it might have just been a, a little bit of a rookie mistake, which you don't really expect from Jerome Blackamolan. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I didn't realize that context of it being recent out of a pit stop. Yeah, that was yeah just after that pit stop. So it was a really weird one. And yeah, the 33, which is normally a pretty safe pick if you're looking at GTD, to have them 
get taken out of the race and lose all those positions, they're going to be fighting a long, a long hard battle back into the championship, even at this early stage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean the the FAF incident awesome. yeah. later in the race was like kind of just as weird though. Yeah, we'll talk about that so a little. Kind of like, yeah, we'll talk about that a little later on. Um, I do want to mention before we get into the last sort of stanza of the race uh, that the '86 car, the uh, the Maya Shank Racing car, they were untouchable for most of the race. They had an awesome lead of like twenty, uh, fifteen to twenty seconds for a lot of the race after making a very good pit stop strategy and having their drivers just be a little better than everyone else um but the fact that we had uh this full course yellow for the core car going off at turn four they just absolutely beached themselves way in at turn four that brought everything back together so all of a sudden you had the top two in prototype line of stern you had the top four in gtlm line of stern and the top two in gtd right behind each other. So that wiped the 14-second gap that the number 86 had over the Lexus. That wiped the two-second or whatever gap that the prototypes had, and it really compressed the top of the GTLM field. And then we had a 20-minute shootout towards the end. Now, that made the race a grandstand finish. I mean, it felt a li- like just the littlest bit cheap because that's like, oh, IMSA, that's, yeah, that's how they... But it, it, made, it made for an awesome finish. Yeah, as far as entertainment factor, that yellow at about the perfect time i think yeah exactly right because the race i don't know about you but to me the race like there was the frantic star and then once everything settled it the, it kind of felt like it was meandering a little bit did you, did you get that feeling as well yeah it wasn't like a total smooth fest but i think the yellow definitely spiced it up yeah and what a battle we had in that last 20 minutes because you had the prototype battle for the lead which was yeah as i mentioned line of stern the the rest of the podium the the nine nine one two kind of checked out after that full course yellow but the battle for the minor places with the number three Corvette the number twenty five BMW and the number nine twelve um, getting passed on the restart and then having to battle back to take that position uh, from the BMW and then the GTD battle the first lap of that safety uh, of green flag the Ambassador Sullivan uh lexus made the move to take the lead after the 86 had dominated the entire race it was like man what is this right it was crazy that the 14 was able to just do like that one little decisive move to get back to 86 just like a little like classic uh jump on the restart yeah and then hold it off for like the whole rest of the race like i really didn't expect that to be honest yeah it was it was really really cool uh I just want to round up the last little bit before we talk about that last lap. So the the 911 ended up making the move on the BMW 25 for third place. It was a classic, I am making this move and there is nothing you can do to stop me uh, in the keyhole. There was like bumping and pushing and barging and everything. It was That was proper touring car stuff, I think. Right. I don't know. Did the 911 just put its wheel on the inside curb or did it like go... It was close. I, 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 th- I think because of the, the lean angle on the car, it didn't actually go onto the grass, but it was overhanging onto the grass on the inside. Yeah, I remember it kicking up a little bit of dust, and it was just kind of like a move, like, I'm going to be on the inside, so deal with it. Yeah, it was it was proper yeah touring car stuff. Tandy definitely made sure that there was going to be no argument uh, from the BMW once they got onto that back straight. Uh, and the battle for the lead was, of course, still between the 
Acura and the number 77 Mazda. The Acura did come home with the win, uh, taking, I think that's only their second win, and they won at Mid-Ohio last year as well. Yeah, and Mazda was like the runner-up last year too. Yeah, exactly right. And So it's actually kind of weird how... Um, it was kind of weird how, like, how much this race, at least in the prototype category in the dpi category repeated last mm. year yeah it was it was a little cool like that i i made mention in the brief preview that i did that it was a race between mazda and acura last year and hopefully we'll see the same again it was it was really really cool and the other mazda ended up taking third but there was a bit of a a weird controversial thing at the end of that uh that race uh with both the Mazda number 55 and the 31 looking like they were going to get pinged for a pass under yellow. Yeah, I saw that. I thought they were... So it was because the... I mentioned this earlier, but uh, the FAF GTD port um, just offed it mm. with like six minutes left, like completely independently for some reason. Um, but that... So that brought out the local yellow. And then the number 31, Wayland Engineering, and the number 55 Mazda both passed this GTLM port. Not sure if it was a 911 or 912. I think it would have been the 912 um, at that point. Okay, yeah, probably. So they both passed 912 um, at the same corner where the FAF went off, where they had the local yellow. And then the number 31 got a penalty. But the number 55, who passed a little bit later, didn't get a penalty for yeah. some reason it was for real... doing the exact same thing. Yeah, it was a real weird one. The only thing I can think is that the number 55 was a judge to have passed before the yellow flag. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, I, I, it might, it might, I guess it must have just been like borderline as far as mm. what's considered the yellow zone and what's not. Yeah, exactly right. But that wasn't the end of things for the number 55. It almost ground to a halt on that lap as well. This is Remember, this is two minutes from the end of the race. The commentators, and this is what I kind of like, this is kind of the interpretation that I started rolling to. Well, first, everyone thought it died, obviously, because um, it's... It's Mazda. The car, because it's a Mazda. Yeah, okay, we'll just say it then, because it's a Mazda. But yeah, I started moving again. Um, so the theory presented was that it was like an extreme fuel saving move, just like save, like to save like all the fuel and just get to the finish yeah. type of move. Um, but cookie later brought up, and this is kind of eye opening when he mentioned this earlier today, that it might've been because the 55 thought they were penalized and they had to give a spot back to another car. Yeah. I, I don't know. It seemed very weird. We never got any explanation from it either. So yeah, and I think I was too focused on the GTD battle. Yeah, at the time it was, and that GTD battle, what a grandstand finish! We were treated to an awesome spectacle where we got to just focus on the GTD battle, weren't we? Yeah, for sure. It was. They had to go another lap after uh, the rest had all finished, and lap of the race, really. Now that I look back on the whole race, I have oh, to say, yeah. yeah, and it was. It was like a, a an overtime finish because the, the prototype cars had crossed the line and they were just coming up to finish uh, their final lap and they crossed the line immediately behind the battle for first position. So if you look at the laps completed in GTD, you have the top two cars with an extra lap on the field, but that was only because the leaders were right behind them and they went hammer and tong for that last lap. It was 
an awesome display of defensive driving from uh, Ambassador Sullivan. I think that was, was that Hinman in the car at that point of time? Or was I, it... I think it was Hawksworth. Yes, that was right. It was Haw- Hawksworth yeah. versus Farnbacker. And yep. it was crazy, crazy battling. And, and what a way to really put GTD on the, the main stage right at the end. Right. It's like, I think the camera was on that battle the whole lap, which why wouldn't it be, like well, you said earlier? Yeah, they were the only ones on track, I think, at that lap. By that right. Point. And like it would, it would have been such a buzzer beater um, if the 86 would have been able to pass to 14. But uh, regardless of the outcome, I think, at least in the season so far, this is like the one lap of, this is like the most intense lap of just like race I don't know if racecraft. This like the it was this brilliant. lap exhibited yeah. the driving talent the most. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was a brutal exhibition of of defensive driving against the an attacking force. Despite being someone who like really loves like the strategy, like all of the like analysis and everything, just to see like one lap of like pure one hundred percent driving, the number eighty six, you could tell that it was giving one ten percent with the way that it like wiggled out of the corners, kicking up break dust into the corners mm. and just like taking really extreme lines doing everything that like driving like they were like in a sim but yeah. it, it was, in real life, like... yeah Farnbacher was given it all he got and he almost got it as well it was only the last corner where he dived just a little too hard and went a little too wide that the battle finally ended and Hawksworth came across to finish the, uh, finish the race in the lead but I I feel kind of uh I feel like the 86 would uh, team would be a little disgruntled by having a massive lead throughout most of the race and then having it taken away through a full-course yellow. I, I'd feel bad. I think so, but it was a really fair pass. There wasn't any contact. Mm. There wasn't any, like, weirdness to it. So I think, it, I think it'd be, like, if it was me, it'd be pretty easy to just accept that part of the game. Yeah, that's just true. Just that, like, you were just caught out. You were just caught out. Yeah. And the uh, the fact that, you know, the IMSA points system doesn't really penalize that too much. I think they lose like three points. So Right, it's not like first place is like double second or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what a, what a finale uh, to that race. And yeah, in general, good racing all around. How would you rate that race out of 10? I'd probably say probably like somewhere around eight. Yeah, that's, have to go with. that's exactly what I had as well. I, I, I reckon it's a solid eight out of 10 it was frantic at the beginning kind of meandered in the middle but had a pretty good grandstand finish so yeah something that i passed over uh when faf had that accident in turn one great work by the imsa race control to run the rest of the race under a local yellow there was six minutes left and if we had a full course yellow to clear that car it would have just neutered what had been a brilliant lead up to the finish so props to them for being brave enough to run it under a local yellow right like on one hand it was kind like at first i was kind of like really guys you're just gonna do this for the sake of the spectacle because this would have been the full course yellow if it was earlier in the race yeah but yeah, now that I think about it more, like the amount of times cars would pass by that area again was so low that like the amount of risk you're exposing, the amount of risk you're exposing the drivers to like is from like a like, yeah, yeah. From like a like exposure point of view, it's like they're only passing. Yeah. And I I think that's in line with what you would see at other racing series that late in the race. I think not necessarily that the rules get thrown out in the last 10 minutes, but there is a certain level of discretion given at that stage in the race where it's like, okay, 
if we throw a yellow now, we're reducing the spectacle of the race. Can we trust the guys to get through that corner consistently without making a mistake and making impact with that car, even if it is just five laps? And I think the way that that Faf car was positioned, it was behind the gravel trap. I, I think that was that was a great decision, and it set up a really cool finish. Yeah. So next round of IMSA is at Belle Isle on May 31, so right at the end of the month. Uh, thoughts coming up into that race? I think that is just prototype and GT, one of the GT classes. Well, I could be GTD. Wrong. GTD, so yeah. traffic is going to be the name of the game at Belle Isle as well. Right, it's the fastest class with the slowest class. Mm. But it seemed to, from the... From the Bell Isle races that I've seen, not be that big of a difference from, like, for example, Long Beach, where there's GTLM and Prototype. I think the thing with Bell Isle is that the closing speeds, especially through that first sector and the last sector, is quite stark. So yeah, it'll be it, it'll be a time. Uh, we have seen incidences incidents between classes before at Bell Isle. So it's not unheard of. Um, but yeah, hopefully it should be a good race. There's going to be a lot of GTD cars though, damn. It's um, it's also one of the extra short um, one hour and 40 minute races. Yeah, because it's supporting the IndyCar there again, yeah, I the, believe. Yeah, so IndyCar has a double header um, at Belle Isle. So they're having like full points races on both Saturday and Sunday. Damn. Right? I'm a little Yeah, I'm a little bit miffed that it's the like short short format race because it's the race that i it's my race that i'm attending this year oh, that i've fantastic. been able to get tickets to nice are you excited to be going yeah first time at uh, first time going to this one only the fourth circuit i've ever been to actually now that i think about it oh, fantastic. um and first street first um street circuit well not really a, i don't know would you consider this a street circuit i would consider it's it like a street a circuit it's yeah it's yeah, it's one of those weird ones. Yeah, it's kind of like Montreal or which? Where's the Australian Grand Prix? Uh, Albert Park. Oh yeah, Albert Park in Melbourne. Yeah, where it's like in a park, so it's not really like it's city a, yeah. streets it's with a, like it's, buildings it's a, right next to it. It's a specialty it. race circuit built out of a road circuit. Yeah, yeah, but one of my coworkers was telling me that the sound at a street circuit with like the the engine notes having like so much more to bounce off of. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Is, yes, that that's pretty much what sold me on the race. So oh, yeah. coming coming there, from coming uh, from someone who's watched uh, many races at the Adelaide Street Circuit, uh, Adelaide Parkland Circuit, that is uh, the the way that the sound just reverberates through the streets. I was at Turn Seven, I think it was last year. We were basically directly behind the long straight that heads up towards Turn Eight. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the track, but that's like the long sweeper. And the Porsches, yeah. especially, they were the, just their exhaust just faced us for like 500 <laughs> meters. It was ridiculous. And that was just the Carrera Cup cars. This wasn't even the GTE cars, which were renowned for being ear blasters. This was just the mm-hmm. GT, uh, the Carrera Cup cars. And it was like, oof, oof. Wow. Well, awesome. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would be an absolute blast. The end of the month. Fantastic. Well, yeah, thank you very much. I hope you have an, have an awesome time uh, doing that. And yeah, thank you for doing this intro- IMSA review with us, Alex. Yeah, it was really fun to talk through this race.
it was a fun race to talk about, wasn't it? For sure. So, uh, we'll just have a quick touch on ELMS's action this weekend at the Monza four hours of, uh, yeah, four hours of Monza. Um, this is, of course, the last hit out for the LMP2 and GTE teams that are heading to Le Mans before the Le Mans race. Of course, we are only now something like 32 days away from the start of the 24 hours of Le Mans. So that's really exciting. On the flip side, though, the weather this weekend doesn't look great. Uh, there was persistent rain through the week for the ELMS uh, open testing that we had. Um, there's going to be plenty of rain for practice and qualifying on today. This is the Saturday. And tomorrow, it looks a little better. It, it looks cold, but doesn't necessarily look rainy. So we could see... Uh, a little bit of a resettling of positions throughout the race tomorrow, especially if qualifying is as uh, damp as it's predicted to be uh, for the weekend. Uh, now we got the normal, pretty well the normal suspects in LM, uh, sorry, in the ELMS this weekend. Uh, most cars from the ELMS race at Paul Ricard make a return, uh, with two notable exceptions. The first. Actually, no, one notable exception, rather. Um, that is the number 88 uh, Proton Competition car. So that car uh, was listed as TBA for the drivers on the entry list, and those driver slots didn't end up getting filled. So Christian Reed, the principal of Proton Racing, made the decision to not run the car that weekend, which is a little bit of a... Like, you don't like seeing it, but... Uh, he basically said that that car is going to be fine for Le Mans. That's all sorted. Uh, and they don't necessarily need the testing, test racing time over the weekend at Monza to get ready. And with the car's seats not being filled, then I guess it makes more prudent sense to not run the car as opposed to running it with no reason. Uh, on the other hand, the Algarve Pro guys are running one short in their number 25 car after a big crash in Wednesday testing in the open test. Um, so what what has been reported as happening is that there was an incident between the, the both Algarve Pro cars. So one of them ran into the other one uh, in the first chicane at quite a high speed. This would have been in wet conditions as well. And it destroyed the number 31 car's chassis uh, which they managed to build up a spare chassis uh, that they got from a Graf, an ex-Graf chassis, um, for racing over the weekend, this weekend. Um, but it did also injure the bronze driver, or the, the uh, silver driver, the amateur driver, in the number 25 car. That was Mark Patterson. So he's been listed as likely out of racing for a while, according to the article on Daily Sports Car that uh, detailed this incident. So it might, this might actually put him out of racing at Le Mans as well. So that can throw up a few different scenarios based on what might happen. Because of course, Algarve Pro uh, is the team with the entry. And if uh, I'm... Under the impression that Mark Patterson is the money behind the team, uh, he's the AM driver, so he he would be the one that brings the money into the team for the race, right? 
Um, I am just going to double check this quickly uh, before I say something I'm going to get wrong. Yeah, so he's one of two bronze drivers in that car, the other being John Falb, who is the uh, United Autosports driver. Now, should Mark Patterson not be able to drive at Le Mans, uh, which is not unlikely... Yeah, he's injured injured hip, so it's not unlikely that he could be out of Le Mans. And with the United Autosports car getting the second car getting an invitation, we could see that car, those drivers, um, not be run for Le Mans. We could see, on the other hand, either the first car in the entry uh, the reserve entry list, so the Eurasia Motorsport car, get added to the Le Mans entry. Or, on the other hand, Algarve Pro Racing was listed in the reserve list with the all-female lineup of Catherine Legg, uh, Christina Nielsen, Anna Beatrice, and Jackie Heinrich, or a combination of those four drivers, which are the, of course, MSR team from uh, IMSA competition in GTD. So we could see those gals, those ladies, step into that car. Now, this is all supposition and maybe and perhaps sort of stuff, but it is something that may have to be thought about in the preparation for Le Mans. On the other hand, uh, we have had practice already, uh, Free Practice 1, which has seen the G-Drive car take the fastest LMP2 time uh, with a, let's have a look here, a 136.2. And that was at the hands of uh, Job van Ertert. I hope they got that right. Trevor Soros, let me know if I got that right. The biggest surprise, though, at the moment is the fact that the Carlin Racing Delara is actually in fourth place. Now, that that car was in the hands of Ben Barnacote, uh, who some of you may remember from the Garage 59 McLaren effort from a few years ago. Uh, and that's a little bit of a surprise because the Delara hasn't necessarily been the fastest chassis. Uh, and it suffered from high-speed sort of porpoising issues uh, in its original form. So the fact that it's doing well at a high-speed circuit is actually really encouraging. They were only just ahead of a pack of cars on a 37.1, including uh, the Dragon Speed Car, Decane Engineering, and United Autosports, all within uh, two hundredths of a second. Uh, so the fact that they're at the head of that pack is actually really, really cool. Um, hopefully that can continue into the race and we get uh, a few different manufacturers at the front of the field. Um, but again, a 19-car field in G- uh, in LMP2, 14 cars in LMP3, it's going to be an absolute madhouse. Um, just quickly on LMP3, uh, you definitely want to be in a Norma in this, uh, in, at this track because that seems to have the better high-speed performance uh, with the top... Five of the top six positions held by Normas at this stage. So that is going to be probably the the way that it goes in LMP3. And in GTE, it could go anyway. Uh, so that is on, of course, on the Sunday. I think it's starting at uh, midday local, so 10 a.m. 10 a.m. GMT. Um, so yeah, make sure you check that out over the weekend. Uh, we will have a review of that race coming up along with uh, GT3 quarterly, finally. Um, we went to get that out a little earlier, but that'll be all set and ready. Uh, and in the coming weeks, we've got one or two special episodes uh, due to our involvement with the Creventic 12 Hours of Bruno, which we're really, really excited about. So we'll have a little bit of a look into that race and that series and we'll fangirl over what's actually happening for us. 
Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for Trovasaurus for sharing his insight on his Spire experience. The, uh, of course, always uh, insightful Kiwi Chris and Cookie Monster FL. And thank you very much, Alex9001, for his discussion on the IMSA race. Thank you for listening. And that GTD battle, we'll just talk about it now because holy damn, and my computer crashed again.